Welcome to Brand Story, Inc. I'm your host, Jay Sharman. Every week, we sit down with smart folks to talk about innovative ways they are creating content to connect with their audiences. I'd like to say every company can be a media company, and this conversation hopefully helps you understand why. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce Joe Favorito to the podcast. Joe has over 30 years of strategic communications and PR and marketing background, uh, an illustrious career working at places like the USTA, the New York Knicks, uh, and one of those guys that if you're in the inner circle of sports media, everyone knows Joe. Joe is the human Rolodex. We're excited to have him on the podcast. Welcome, Joe. All it means is that I'm old. <laughs> and I forgot to mention the most important thing, right? I mean, you're you're teaching at an Ivy League school right now. You're also you're yeah, teaching again, at Columbia. Bottom of the barrel scratched. So <laughs> so that's uh, that's kind of how those things happen. I mean, it's uh, you just there's a line from um, the movie Broadcast News where William Hurt says to um, one of his colleagues, "You know, what do you do when your dreams?" Uh, surpass your realities and it was Albert Brooks that he said to me and Albert Brooks turns to me and goes don't tell anybody <laughs> so, so anyway that's kind of uh, I, I kind of feel that way I mean I, I think I'm very lucky um, having been on my own now for the last 12 years after we um, folded up our tent in our mixed martial arts venture and sold it to the UFC uh, you know I've been very lucky to work with a lot of really interesting and smart people and uh I'm also not to blow any smoke, but you're on that list, Jay. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. I pay you well. <laughs> Speaking of the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, so, exactly. Anyway. So I appreciate that, Joe. I mean, I think a yep. couple things. One, let's start there. I mean, you have such a unique perspective. You've worked with so many different clients. Like, and I, I truly mean that. Like, and Joe's one of the good mm-hmm. guys out there. And so you, you get to look behind the curtain of so many different entities, startup leagues, teams, brands, the, the whole kit and caboodle. You know, at Brand Story Inc., we're really focused on pulling the curtain back on how organizations, right, whether you're a team, a league, a, a brand, how you're acting and thinking like a media company to engage your end consumer in a way that you can really in this, take use of the, of the tools and the platforms that are out there. Talk for a second about how you're talking about this at Columbia in terms of mm-hmm. – what you're seeing from your students and what you're teaching. So let's start there, Mr. Ivy League. Well, but, yep. So I'll give you um, uh, probably a little bit of a broader example, but since he was a Columbia Law School graduate and was on the Board of Trustees, he really fits into what my class specifically does. Um, so I, I was lucky enough the last few years to spend a lot of time around David Stern. And for some reason, um, you know, he really kind of took me a little bit more into his kind of inner circle, which has been interesting. And, and really we developed a pretty good relationship over the last, you know, two or three years, much, much better than when I was at the NBA, but that's a different story. Um, and David constantly would say when he would go and talk to groups, especially young people looking to kind of figure out what to do or partners that he was trying to bring in, uh, when he was, he did a lot of work with John Kozner the last, you know, mm-hmm. uh, probably like nine or 10 months of his life. Uh, and he would always go around and say, there are two things that businesses do very poorly these days. One is sell. The other is tell their story. Hmm. Um, and I think that's probably very true. And that's how we kind of developed the the class that, that I've been teaching now for 12 years, which has really evolved into a storytelling class. 
uh, and the the essence of content is really having great, really really great stories. And ironically, um, I was driving yesterday and I heard uh, Kevin uh, it's Kevin O'Malley, right? Is Kevin O'Malley Kevin O'Malley is a Shark Tank guy, mm-hmm. um, and he was on the Aspen Ideas Institute podcast and he talked about um, how so many brands and young people and any kind of company looking in media fail because they, they, they cannot effectively tell their story in an elevator pitch, 35 seconds to a minute. Mm-hmm. And the ones that have a chance are the ones that know who their audience is, who they're trying to reach, what medium they're trying to reach, and how they're trying to use media um, no matter who they are, correctly at the same time. So, so um, I spoke at American University last week, and, and what the first question I asked a student a class of about 15 students was, "Who's the media?" And you know, they rattled off Fox News and NPR and Comcast, and I stopped them and I said, "No, the media is anybody who's holding a phone." <laughs> so, so if you have a mobile device in your hand, you are the media. These you know, you look at citizen journalism uh, and how it's all played out and, um, you know, who's reporting on stories. And if you have a phone, you have the ability to storytell. Now, whether that's a personal story to your kids, whether that's a business story, whether you are, you know, a media company aggregating people uh, to, you know, to put together pieces, whether you are a gambling company, it doesn't really matter. But the, the, the goal is that you have the ability to tell story and there are thousands and millions of stories out there that haven't been told. Now, how do you monetize them, and how do you put them on the right medium and with the right audience is the question. So, I lost you there for a second, but um, oh, the let, let's 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 go there with you. Let's go to the let's go to the leagues and teams. Um, who are you seeing right now that are doing interesting things, right? NBA gets a lot of love and and as oh. kind of being a forerunner, but you know maybe. Maybe even people that that might be below the radar. Who who do you think is doing a good job of directly connecting well, with their consumer? I, I think the ones that do a good job sometimes are the ones that, like you said, Jay, you don't really know a lot about, but you see them and they're, and they're willing to try things to be disruptive. The biggest problem when you get to the you know the four biggest leagues, um, and you know I wouldn't even put MLS as the fifth or NASCAR in that group or the PGA Tour or, or the ATP or the WTA. Is because when you when you have the hammer and you're the four biggest leagues, a lot of times you're very risk averse and you know what the power of what it is that you have is. So, um, you know, you'll go to a company and because your shield is so powerful or your logo is so powerful, they're coming to you and they're handing you cash and you want the cash because you're a you know you have owners that you need to answer to. So, the amount of the ability of disruption is sometimes a little bit clouded. Now, um, I think when you go a step behind that and you say, you know, you put the the properties out there or the media companies out there that are the what ifs, you know, what can we do? You know, so when Nathan Lundberg is out there selling Twitch to the G League, um, and, and Nathan works for Twitch, as uh, one of the head salespeople at Twitch and one of the head marketing people, you know, it's like, what can we do that, that's a litmus test to see where this is going to go in the future? in terms of fan engagement. Um, when you are the XFL and you're miking everybody in sight, you're trying to figure out kind of what the path is where you can generate some buzz, but also create um, platforms or opportunities that are sellable to your salespeople. You know, so if we do a coach's 
you know, uh, behind the scenes, listen in while, you know, Norm Chow of the L.A. team is calling plays from the press box. Is that something we can sell down the line? And is that something that's interesting to people? I think those things are really cool. Um, I think that, you know, you look at properties like the National Lacrosse League and what they're doing with Bleacher Report Live and miking everybody in mm-hmm. sight and, you know, putting mics on referees as they're talking to uh, replay officials. And there was a really interesting heated discussion that went on about an overturned re- uh, replay in a you know an NLL game on Bleach Report Live on Saturday in Calgary that was an amazing look inside kind of how these things go on. Um, I think that's really valuable. Um, I think the WNBA has done a great job of storytelling in the last couple of years uh, because they have the ability to do that. I think the NWSL has a tremendous opportunity now that Budweiser has put money into them uh, and they have a new Commissioner and Lisa Baird, who understands how to sell and how to storytell, um, where they can go and do disruptive things now. Um, you know, I, I think for the, the four major leagues, it's just sometimes hard because you're, you know, what's the, you're, when you're in a risk averse business and you're making so much money, you know, you don't really want to boat rock. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you do. You know, I think the NBA has tested a lot of things and they're, they're so much, I think, in my opinion, more ahead of most of the other leagues and, testing things and seeing what the fans are saying and how they can listen to the fans all the time and adapt because they have to be constantly nimble. I think that, you know, that's pretty valuable. Um, you know, I think MLS is getting away from some of the traditional now where it's worked for a while. Um, but the audience is kind of there, but they want more and they have to figure out how to give them more. So, you know, hopefully you're going to see some innovation on the, on the media side and in the broadcast side there, you know, the one place that I think it, it always kind of makes me scratch my head, and it's like um, um, it really kind of surprises me is that with with few exceptions, I think the college space is largely untapped. And I think part of that comes with finances, but when you look around college campuses and even high schools, and you've got lots of innovative, disruptive thought on campuses, the traditionalists at the top of many universities especially on the athletic side, do not go there. And I, for the life of me, I can't figure out why. And what do you mean by and go there? Where is, where is there? They don't do things like you have the ability to stream. So, you know, we know we're trying to recruit, and, and I'll give you an example of one that, that's worked pretty well. So University of Pennsylvania men's basketball team has a Chinese player. Last year, two Chinese students came to them and said, we would love to stream games in Mandarin. They let them do it. I don't know why other schools don't do that. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to recruit from all over the world, it doesn't cost you anything to be doing streams in seven different languages if you can find people to do it. And by the way, those people are the students. It becomes buzzworthy and it becomes sellable at some point. Plus, you know, you're speaking to an audience, literally speaking to an audience, that you don't have the opportunity to speak to a lot of times in their language. So, you know, I mean, that's just one example. I think that um, colleges are still extremely, extremely conservative in the way they look at media, um, you know, and I think that comes from athletic departments, who, uh, athletic directors who, who for a large part are not focused on that, and they don't have a lot of professionals around them sometimes. They farm it out to people who are able to sell and bring them in money, and they take a check and they sit back and they fundraise, as opposed to being kind of diversive, um, really kind of interesting thinkers who can say, look at all these smart people around us on campus. Why don't we go and talk to them and figure out what we can do to be innovative and, and disruptive? Now, there are schools 
Northwestern being one, Clemson being another, um, that look at it and say, how can we kind of create a Petri dish and really kind of reimagine how people are consuming our brand, our athletes, our sports, especially on the women's side, um, and what can we do to be more and more diverse? Um, you know, it's interesting. I want to jump in there. I think you yep. know, the the 800-pound gorilla in the collegiate space is name, name, image, and likeness, right? And for those that aren't familiar with it, uh, landmark court cases going on right now, and, and the, the, the tea leaves would suggest that it's it's sooner rather than later that an individual athlete is going to be able to monetize their own image, right? So commercial endorsements, whatever that may mean, which opens up a can of worms because a Trevor Lawrence, who's a star quarterback at Clemson, would presumably get a lot more money than a women's field hockey player. And there's all sorts of a morass there. And we work with several colleges and um, conferences, as you know, and I feel that they, in general, the landscape is so unprepared for when that uh, when that box opens up. I'd, I'd be curious to get your take on where you think things are going there around that topic. So I think the creative and the disruptive will help rule the day. A, a step below the major athletes who may or may not be able to engage. So, you know, if this was taking an athlete from five years ago and going five years into the future, you know, the amount of money Johnny Manziel could have made off of Texas A&M with all the, you know, the shenanigans mm-hmm. that he pulled was probably pretty substantial. Um, you know, I look at a guy like, um, and I can't remember his name, the kid from Stephen F. Austin, mm-hmm. who made the shot to beat Duke. And it turns out that his family was devastated in the hurricane last summer in Jamaica. And he wanted to use it for fundraising. I think that there are plenty of creative, um, disruptive athletes who also are students on campus who can say, hey, I'm going to design a T-shirt. And, hey, I know how to sell it. Yeah. And I think that's where you're going to see some really fun and interesting things happen. And I don't think it's just going to be the big names. I think it's someone who's going to be smart enough to grab lightning in a bottle for a couple of weeks, realizing that this is their, you know, their moment to shine and they're going to be able to do it. I mean, UMBC is the perfect example of what happened a few years ago. Yeah. Think about how much money that those kids could have capitalized on by coming up with some pretty cool ideas, you know, when, when they beat the university of Virginia in the first round. So, um, I think you have to be smart enough to do it. I think a lot of it exists, and kids just don't, you know, they, they step back because they know the specter of the NCAA is going to beat them down. Um, and I, I think once the gloves are off, I think there's going to be a lot of surprises. I think you're going to see, you know, Columbia fencers who win the NCAA tournament come up with something cool, and they're not going to make a fortune, but they're going to develop something because they know how to develop marketing plans. I think what you're going to see is really smart students work together with other smart students who also happen to be athletes to de- to really kind of exercise some pretty diverse marketing platforms um, that will both create an ROI and set up a business going forward. And that's how it will kind of grow. Well, it's, think, anyway. it's interesting. I mean, uh, I remember an entourage, God, I don't know, it's probably seven years ago now. I'm terrible with dates. But there was that cliched scene with Ari um, going in and talking to celebrities, and it was like, you are a brand. Right when he was talking to, when he was talking to a prospective client, it's like you are a brand, mm-hmm. and and that notion of individuals becoming brands is like powder keg right now. I mean, you and I both know Dan Reed, who runs global sports at at Facebook, and 
I remember talking to him three or four years ago about this, and I was running some things by him just to make sure that I wasn't crazy, which is, you know, a loaded question. But he, you know, and he, he told me, he said, look, if, if, and he gave me a great metaphor, and he said, if you think of anybody with, in a sport, or it doesn't have to be in sports, but any, any individual on Facebook just using that platform who has a substantial media following, right, half a million, million followers, whatever it may be, it's really kind of almost the modern-day cable affiliate, right? So if that person's a lacrosse player mm-hmm. or a basketball player um, or whatever they may be, they could be a musician, it, Facebook, he told me, is rewarded to kind of whoever the, the, the center hub of who's creating that content, if you think of that as almost like the national cable television um, signal, and those are the affiliate channels, that was kind of a framework to think about. And I've talked about that because you look at people like a Roger Federer who has 15 million Facebook followers. And even some of the, um, I think one of the famous cases was Alex Morgan and they ran a professional soccer game on her Facebook page and it got 400,000 viewers, which is, as you know, that's, that's better than most things on ESPN in primetime, right? Like that's crazy numbers. And it, I'm curious to where, where what you think the tipping point is when those things and those strategies start really becoming more, instead of experimental, kind of the norm. What's it going to take? Uh, I, I don't know if they'll ever be the norm. I think you'll have exceptions. I think, you know, one of the things that people look back, and especially now that you can get analytics pretty clearly as to the who, what, when, and where, it's how do you sustain these things? Mm-hmm. I mean, there there are all these kind of, it happened 10 years ago with MMA. It's happening now with, quote, esports, although esports is another kind of misnomer in a lot of things, where, um, you know, you talk to the major players in, in the gaming world, and they're like, look, yeah, we get 12,000 people once a year for a world championship. But in a lot of ways, we lose money on those events. Those are marketing events that we use to sell pieces of our game. Mm-hmm. And... You know, everybody walks in and they say, oh, it's 12,000 people here. Well, putting on events is really expensive. You know, we, we have to figure out the, the other verticals where we can make money for the long term, and that, that's kind of how it will grow. You know, in reality, you know, the best, quote, esports events, if you go to Riot Games uh, and you watch an event in their arena, their arena is 400 seats. That's hmm. the audience. It's not, you know, 20,000 people. They know that they can't do that. And... Um, you know, I remember talking to the UFC, and it was a model for the WWE for years. Was you know, you, you, especially the UFC would never go to the same city other than Las Vegas two years in a row because they knew that there were twelve thousand diehard fans, and then there'd be another five thousand people that would come in, kind of look at it, and you know, wouldn't come back, or they would come back in a smaller number. Um, they became fans. They would follow the Ultimate Fighter. They would buy some pay per views, but you know not 19,000 people showing up at every event, the same people all the time. So you have to figure out what that churn rate is and and kind of figure out how to grow it. Now, um, I think going forward for media companies, you need a massive audience to be successful. That's never going to change. You know, there are niches that will work and that will be monetized, especially people who can speak directly and storytell directly to their audience and that core audience, never forget that core audience. But then, you know, if you want to reach a global audience consistently, not a one-off. Now, again, Alex Morgan streaming a game on her page gets all those views how many times? She, if she goes and streams um, 
the Portland Thorns every week, I don't think she's going to get that many followers. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's, it's, you know, how do you build that audience? And then, and then by the way, how do you take that four, those 400,000 and make sure that you're capturing the data and then coming back to them with something else that's interesting to them so that you understand who they are? That's really the key. I see a lot of problems like NWSL will get, you know, 10,000 people at a game after World Cup, and then the question becomes, oh, did you capture their data? Did you ask anything? Did you do, you know, uh, casual gaming with them? Did you, you know, how did you get all the data of everybody who's in your stadium? They're like, uh, 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 we didn't do that. Mm. So it's lost. You know, the value is in the aggregate data and what you do with that to kind of get from step, step one to step two. And that's that's the challenge, and that's kind of where this is all going to evolve going forward, I think. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think... I do believe, though, there is a ton of value, um, to your point, that direct-to-consumer, if you, regardless of what sport you are and regardless of how niche it is, right, if you have, if you have 2 million people's contact information and you know they're lacrosse fans, in that space, that's extremely valuable. It's a highly efficient, yeah. right? It's not going to be hundreds, sure. worth hundreds of millions of dollars, but to the right people and the right profile, to leverage that is really that value. And I, I, I'd love to get your take on this. You and I know a lot of the, the linear TV folks and the transition. I just feel the transition. I'm surprised at how slow it's been. But when you step back and look at follow the money, right, like Turner Sports is going to bring in a billion plus dollars on March Madness, right? Like you look at the dollars and, and TV's reach is still significant. What What's mm-hmm. fascinating to me is that the value proposition, especially for like second tier and third tier brands who may not have um you know the monies of the the first tier brands the cokes the state farms i'm still surprised at how it seems that value and that example i just gave of like uh you know which is totally made up the national lacrosse league that direct to consumer how how the value still hasn't seemed to have gotten to a place where brands are all in on leveraging that it just seems to be much more efficient um i'm curious to get your take on where you think we are in this shift in the sports marketing world of uh, linear to digital? So, so I, I think there's a couple things. One is I think the buyers or the people who are selling um, with budgets are still very, very risk averse. If you go to your boss Agreed. who's 65-year-old white guy sitting in an office, you know, and you are based on, you're on a commission-based business, and you go to him and say, I'm going to go and buy ESPN. He says, oh, great. If you go to him and say, I'm going to buy ESPN Plus or Bleacher Report Live or, um, you know, um, Flow Sports, because this is a really cool audience and it's growing, he better be right. <laughs> and she better be right. Because if they're not for the short term, and, and that's kind of the problem is that you're still dealing with a very short term business when you're based on commissions. Um, to figure out how you can do that and making sure that you're at, uh, you know, you're, you're um, spending in the right place. So you take that and then you take a company like, and I'll use Anheuser-Busch as an example, you know, under Nick Kelly, they've changed some of their focus. Now they're not getting away from their big deals, right? but they're saying, you know what, we're going to take a flyer for four, four years on women's soccer because we think it's going to grow. And not only that, we're not just going to give them money. We're going to make sure that they're set up for success. So we're going to, put the, the athletes in that league in partnership with other athletes to let them tell the story and let them grow together. So then LeBron James can say, it's kind of cool that I'm hanging out with, um, you know, whichever women's soccer player you want to talk to. I'm trying to think of a second tier player that would make sense. 
Um, but I think that will that will help, and that will kind of help raise the boat when when peer to peer. It's kind of interesting that, that they see growth, um, and you know, over time, depending on how you're measuring growth, is another piece of success that is still kind of amorphous. And you know, you look at what NBC has done you know, for several years now with what they call TAMI, which is Total Audience Measurement Indicator. And that measures the amount of people engaged for properties like the uh, MLS for a little while, but for the NHL uh, and for the Olympics across every possible platform. It's not a Nielsen rating. It's, you know, measuring sentiment. It's measuring, you know, share of voice. It's measuring all the other pieces that are valuable today, but are still pretty premature uh, when you go to a senior person who doesn't understand all that, and he says, oh, what's the Nielsen number? Yep. You know, yep. the Nielsen number is important, but it's amazing how much it's talked about when the number is down. When the number is up, you know, people kind of forget about it, and they say, oh, of course it's up, because that was the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. You know, well, you know, I think when you're, you're dealing with a handheld device and people engaging in on many different forms of media, it's not as easy to measure anymore. And, um, you know, it's always been said that all politics are local. I think a lot of sports now are becoming more and more local. And if you can impact me directly, and I like that, and I go and talk to my friends and say, you should go watch that, that amplifies your message. And sometimes you don't know that, and you can't measure that right away. It just takes time. But, you know, at the end of the day, the advertising business is still very risk-averse. And until that changes, and I think it's slowly changing because people are seeing new opportunities, um, it's just going to be a challenge. I'm talking with Joe Favorito, uh, sports marketing and PR legend. If you haven't, go and sign up for his newsletter. It's Sports Marketing and PR Roundup, Sports Publicity, Marketing, and Brand Building in a New Age. And it's Joe Favorito, F-A-V-O-R-I-T-O.com. Uh, you, let, let's go two places. You yourself have become a little bit of a media company. You have a ton of content at JoeFavorito.com. You're pumping out, you know, um, content consistently you've got your newsletter you're tapped into everything you're extremely active on multiple platforms on on social media share how you look at yourself as a brand and what you've done and how it's impacted your business i don't really look at myself as a brand i think what i look at myself I, I, i'm very much a believer in sharing positive stories um and that's kind of why i do what i do part of it is you know, having learned from a lot of people that, you know, you give for every piece you give, you get 10 back. And I really believe that. Um, and it's, it's very, it's still, I mean, I have a good amount of clients that kind of come in and out and appreciate the ability that, that where I can help them storytell or meet other people. Um, but I think really the goal is to get people aware of some of the better practices that they're not focusing on. And that was the, the principle of the newsletter and how we came about is it's like, here are 10 things to read that you may not have seen. Here's mm -hmm. a podcast to uh, Here's some not-for-profits looking for help. Here's a Latino story that you don't know about. Um, and, and let them go and take that and share. I mean, I, I don't do the newsletter to make money. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually do it because it keeps my mind thinking about what's new and fresh so that I don't, I don't get stale in what I'm doing. It helps me look at a lot of different things, get a first look at a lot of different things. And it helps me amongst you know, the audience and, you know, the newsletter goes probably on Sunday mornings to about 40,000 people now. Um, it helps them hopefully get a little bit more interested and engaged in things that they weren't focused on because their heads are down and, you know, they're in the silo or the weeds that they're in. And, uh, you know, 
can't get a breath, and this hopefully becomes a little bit of a fresh breath and helps them think about things differently. Oh, it's incredible. 40,000 people. I mean, that's just astounding, right? I mean, and that, I mean, think about that. That just underscored the point I was trying to make before with the National Lacrosse League. The 40,000 people that you have, it's not just that you have their name in emails. You have their trust, right? They open. Your, your open rates are have got Pretty to be high. really high. It's because people yep. trust you, and you've earned their trust by – it's funny. It's it's simple in concept, hard to execute. But I still believe that curation, right? Mm-hmm. Find re, your ability to curate content, and that that concept in general is something that any brand, most brands, could be doing in their own marketplace to build the trust. Hey, I'm doing a if, service for you if they wanted to. And I, I think that that again, people are so focused on today that they don't take a breath and kind of say, well, this is great, but what are we doing to keep things moving forward? And and the problem, as you know, Jay, is if you're not thinking about, you know, what's down the line, at least, you know, for a portion of your time, it passes you by right away and mm-hmm. suddenly you're screwed. Um, I think my goal is to always kind of be looking ahead and figuring out how you kind of put the pieces together. Now, I don't know, I'm not smart enough to know how to put all those pieces together, and people say, well, how do you know what to put in the newsletter? I always use the, the analogy of um, um, uh, Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting, where, you know, My favorite he movie. looks at the equation and he sees things that other people see, but, you know, he would look at a piano and not have, know how to play it. And mm-hmm. I just, it's just something when I look at an article or uh, I'll hear something, and listening is a big part of that, by the way, which we don't do enough listening sometimes. Um, I just listen to something and I'm like, oh, there it is. And, you know, and I'll... Like I literally just grabbed a quote out of an article yesterday that I saw that I just thought was, it wasn't my words, but it was kind of profound that I, you know, and I have up, there's my quote for this week. And I know, you know, over the course of 72 hours, how to kind of curate all that stuff and drop it in. And then I send it off to a really good partner in Smart Brief and they make it look beautiful and it goes out on Sunday morning. That's awesome. Well, let's let's bring it home here with, you talked about looking ahead to the future and you have your own Petri dish. Right at Columbia, you have tomorrow's stars today. Share what are the topics that we're talking about that are most resonant? Right, you've got podcasting, yeah. gambling, all sorts of things going on in the wild, wild west of, of sports media. What's bubbling mm-hmm. up in your classroom? I think the one thing that we see more and more is measurement and how how measurement is going to continue to evolve and how you can use data to um, to create not just the you know a, a fluid fan. Um, but how you can use that to really engage beyond what you're doing now. And, and part of that is driving new revenue sources um, and, and also being more and more personal to people who you're trying to get discretionary dollars from. So, um, you know, what does that audience look like? Um, who's doing the best job? Who's listening to people? Who's doing good jobs at storytelling? What brands are selling the best and why are people buying them? I think all that's important. You know, when you look forward you know, there are areas that I look at that I think are just going to keep growing. Gaming, not not esports, but gaming overall and personal gamification, I think, is going to be a big one. Uh, and, it, it, you know, it's continuing to evolve. You know, part of that is gambling, but part of it is just kind of, you know, talking amongst your peer group and growing your peer group globally, you know, if you're watching a game. You know, I, I think what ESPN's done with the Megacast, you're going to see more and more of those type of things where people can pick and choose, you know, how they're watching and when they're watching it. So there's that. You know, I think health and wellness is going to continue to grow. You know, there is, you know, a gaping hole in this society right now around mental health. And I think that that's going to be another topic that 
farm, big farm is going to be involved with and is going to be spending money against because it's from, you know, the pressure that the teens are putting on themselves to the highest level of professional athletes, people like Kevin Love and, and other people who it's okay to talk about that stuff. Um, you know, I think there's, there's a business there. You know, you look at cannabis and CBD. I think that's going to be a big business going forward. I think, mm-hmm. I think in the short term, there's going to be more money spent there than against gambling because gambling is going to take a longer time to play out. Um, I think, you know, the, the whole NIL issue is going to continue to grow. Um, you know, and I, I think one of the things that we tell students is there's really a few things that you, that you need to do. You need to, number one, be a good person. You need to be socially conscious. You have to understand cause and cause marketing and how that, that fits into everything. I think you have to have an understanding of coding, even a casual understanding of coding, because analytics and data is going to become more and more no matter what business you're in, whether you are a groundskeeper, making sure that you're watering the field enough, whether you are working in a concession stand and making sure that, that you know, all the product that is flowing out is flowing out in the right time, uh, whether you're a general manager picking a team, I think all that is going to be based on, you know, how you read, see, uh, analyze, and then use data that comes in properly and efficiently. Um, and then the last thing that we talk about is time management. Um, you know, how do you manage your time best with everything that's out there so that you're not wasting time and that you're learning every day? It's so important to be learning every day and, and kind of leaving everything, figuring out what it is that, that can take you as a person and as a professional to kind of move ahead. And I, I think that's really important. My class, we start my class every day off with, and I learned this from my then four-year-old, now six-year-old twin nieces, because they said it to me once. Uh, we start off my class, and I ask them all one question. I had no idea. So we go around the room and ask them, what is the one thing that they learned from the past class that they had no idea about? And mm. they can talk about, you know, what subway they took, you know, why it's important to put queso on something that they ate today, <laughs> um, uh, you know, or, you know, why you know, a certain player is wearing sneakers or someone dedicated to a cause. And it gets them to think about things. And I think that's really valuable. And, you know, I could go 20 minutes without saying I had no idea about something. And and I think that's important for us to be introspective and look at those things and figure out how it applies to where we're going going forward. Love the nonstop learning from Joe Favorito. At Joe Fav, F-A-V on Twitter, joefavorito.com for the newsletter. Joe, thanks so much for joining us today. And you just triggered a, heard a Nelson Mandela quote yesterday that kind of speaks to this. And he said, uh, I never lose. I either win or I'm learning. And I think yep. that, uh, that, that sums up you pretty well. So really appreciate the time and insights, my friend. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening to Brand Story, Inc., We'll be back next week with another conversation digging into the ways companies are becoming like media companies. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give me a follow on Twitter at underscore Jay Sharman and on LinkedIn.